Morning, y'all. Our passage today is from Matthew 2, the first 12 verses. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. That concludes the passage. Merry Christmas, Kingsway. Really good to be with you. We love to pray on Sunday morning because we serve a God who is a father, which means he loves to hear the requests and cries and needs of his children when we feel like we know how to present them, when we listen to ourselves pray and think, I'm not even sure I would want to answer that prayer. Because of the work of Jesus Christ, he perfects our praises and our prayers. Isn't that good news? We don't always get to talk about um, specific answers to prayer on Sunday morning, but I, I could not resist this morning letting you know a particular answer to prayer that brings a lot of joy to my heart. Um, we've been praying for months that the Lord would work a immigration miracle and give a visa to Josh and Lisa Kruger to come here for a one-year church planting residency. A couple weeks ago, the lawyer we were working with, this is her thing, she said, they're going to request a site visit, you're going to get parked in the slow train, it's going to be six plus months. And we simply replied back, let's keep going, we're going to pray. And I know many of you have been praying. I learned this week, seven days after the petition was filed, not six months, seven days, we have a visa. Yes. So, Josh and Lisa and their boys, Joshua and Matthew, will be with us um, by the end of January. And I'm just praising God, guys. He, let that encourage your heart, right? Where, where we can see, particularly as kind of cynical, skeptical Americans, we can see government and say, oh, they say six months, it'll probably be nine, you know, the whole Scrooge thing. Our God is not bound by online waiting periods. That's why we pray to him, right? So praise be to God. Lord, thank you for that. Would you bless this preaching of your word, Father? Thank you for this time where we could linger um, 
this Advent or anticipation season. Even that answer to prayer this past week reminds us that you're a God who keeps your promises. You're not checked out. You're active. You're working. You came. And one day you're coming back to make all this new. Lord, we long for that day. Thank you for the way the gospel Your life and death and resurrection and the good news of salvation in that for all who turn from their sin and trust in you, Jesus. Your gospel, Lord, the gospel we've sung about this morning, gives us both hope for today and all this brokenness and sin and trouble and hope for tomorrow and hope till the day when you come back and keep your word. Would you make us a people that spend our entire year in Advent, as it were, anticipating the returning, coming again, King Jesus. Make us that people, we pray, Lord, in your name. Amen. Friend, when was the the last time you read an article in the news entitled, National Leader Rules with Perfect Integrity and Wisdom? Or click here to see reigning monarch that never failed his people. If I I saw that, you know, on my news feed or BBC or something, if you stumbled across that headline, what, what would you quickly conclude? I can tell you what I would conclude. It's it's clickbait, right? It's a propaganda piece, it's fake news, it's it's blatantly biased reporting. Like, I'm not gonna fall for that. Why, why not? Why, why do we immediately say, something's not up to snuff? Because we know no ruler on earth is perfect, right? No ruler, no politician, no parent, no boss, no president, no king, no father, no, no ruler. Every king in the history of this world, in every culture, every country, every ethnicity and time, is riddled with weakness and limitation. And you might forget all that. We do this all the time, sadly, and invest our hope in a human ruler, my politician, to the point of functionally worshiping them and demonizing their opponents. But at some point, that mirage will come crashing down. Right? You you will be disappointed. You you may think that you have found a ruler worthy of praise. But I would argue that James 3.8, James 3.2 will have the final word, for we all stumble in many ways. And it's that stubborn fact that reality, without exception in the kingdom of men, that, that makes our King Jesus so amazing. Really is. He, he has, think about this. King Jesus has no feet of clay. He never stumbles or falls. He, he has no weaknesses. 
He's perfect in all his ways. His, his power is unlimited. He only does what is pleasing to God the Father. He's wiser than you will ever comprehend. He's more loving than you could ever imagine. And his sovereign control over the affairs of the kingdoms of men, without exception, is absolute. That's amazing. By contrast, right? To who we are, to who every other human ruler is. And his kingdom, the kingdom of God, at least for now, often appears really insignificant, really small. If you're a Christian, I doubt, I doubt you feel in this time, in this place, like you were part of a robust cultural majority. We don't. His citizens are, are mocked and despised. The, the kingdoms of this world continue to, to rage with all their fury against the Lord of hosts and his anointed. They've always done that. They're going to continue to do that. But here's the caution for all of us. We must not take the the mistrust and the suspicion that we often feel against human authorities and, and foist that on King Jesus as if he's no different. Or as if he's just one other figure in a panoply of the fallen. Unlike every other king, my friend, King Jesus is forever and always worthy of praise. And that's what makes Christmas such good news. If if you think about it, that the king of kings, the only sovereign, the the ruler of the kingdoms of men, that kind of king, not an us kind of king, a perfect kind of king, that king has come to us. He's arrived And Matthew 2, 1 through 12, what we just read, gives us an incredible window into the royal identity of this king, King Jesus, and, and, and and a study in contrast, so to speak, between those who oppose his authority and those who delight in his authority. There's, there's a contrast in this whole passage, and that really confronts each of us with a critical question, that this is not a complicated sermon, okay? Here's the question, will you resist King Jesus, or will you embrace King Jesus? That's the question. That, that, that's the divinely intended effect of this passage. It poses a critical question, are you going to resist King Jesus, or are you going to embrace King Jesus? How will you respond to the royal reign of King Jesus? Are are you going to clutch, grasp, cling to the the fleeting shadow of your kingdom? Are you going to spend your life living devoted to his kingdom, to the kingdom of God? How will you respond to King Jesus? That, That question is unavoidable for this reason. Point number one, the incarnation is a divine invasion of the kingdom of men. You didn't invite him. He didn't ask your permission. (laughs) He came because he's the king. 
That's his prerogative. And these events in the first half of chapter 2, we'll get to the second half next week, they, they likely took place when Jesus was probably one to two years old. They were not given an exact time. All we know is that they took place, what does Matthew say in verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And that location is a clue, if you were a Jew, if you knew your Old Testament, to Jesus' identity. Bethlehem was the birthplace of a pretty important king named King David, <laughs> the prototypical king of Israel. And, and Judah, or the, the land of Judea, was the tribe from which the Lord promised to raise up a royal deliverer, the long-awaited Messiah, who would make everything sad untrue. And so the very location of Jesus' birth, Matthew in verse 1 is giving us a big clue, a big hint here, confirms Jesus' identity as God's anointed ruler. A king has been born, because kings come from places like Bethlehem in Judea. But immediately, Matthew reminds us, this king was not born into a political vacuum, right? Remember, he invaded. He was born, what does Matthew say? In the days of Herod the king. And there are a lot of Herods in the Bible because they all wanted to be called Herod. So, so let me tell you about this Herod, okay? He was also known as Herod the Great. He was crowned by the Romans, king of Judea around 40 BC. He was uniquely skilled at quashing uprisings and collecting taxes and generally enforcing Rome's agenda. He was good at that stuff, especially during the early and middle years of his reign. But, but toward the end of his reign, he, he became increasingly unstable and unpredictable and fearful and violent perhaps because he was trying to deal with all the challenges of 10 wives and 15 children. And a story in Melton Winstead describes Herod the Great's latter years this way. Listen, Herod became a paranoid tyrant, worried that he would lose his kingdom. The fortresses he built, places like Masada, reflect this paranoia as, as they provided refuge when he felt threatened. So you, you get closer to 4 BC when he died and his behavior is just unspeakable. He, he executes two of his own sons because he heard a rumor that they were thinking about committing mutiny. And then his, his favorite wife, a Jew, he killed her and her parents and then grieved it. He was a mess. And it was during those very years of terror at, at the thought of losing his authority that th this group of wise men or magi came from the east to Jerusalem. Now, don't think three. We don't know how many there were. Okay, I don't know where that came from. They come from the east to Jerusalem. And Magi are notable in part because they were less than reputable figures in the early church. 
They, they were typically schooled in history and literature and astronomy and astrology and, and various magic spiritual arts of different kinds. So, so think like Simon the Magician in Acts 8. It's not the sort of person Matthew would just voluntarily insert into a story to get his fellow Jews to read. Unless, of course, it was true. And he's just reporting the truth, which he is. Add that to the fact that these magi are Gentiles from the East. Think about that. The the very first people Matthew records coming to worship Jesus are not part of the ethnic people of God. They're not Jews. What, what, what is that? Well, it's, a, it's an anticipation of the, the great commission in Matthew 28, where Jesus would tell us, his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. And these wise men seem to have a, a, some kind of basic understanding of Jewish messianic expectations because they, they show up in the capital city, Jerusalem, and they ask, look at verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. Evidently, some sort of astronomical phenomena convinced them that that a great king had been born in the West. Perhaps they knew Numbers 24-17 because Jews were still scattered around the known world. Balaam's prophecy, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And all kinds of scholars have all kinds of theories about the exact nature of the star. But ultimately, for sure, we know nothing more than what Matthew reveals here. And that's okay. Because we have all we need. All we know is that some light in the heavens convinced these men, these magi, that that the Messiah, or or in Greek parlance, the king of the Jews, same difference, had been born. And notice, this was no idle, scholarly, dispassionate quest. It's deeply personal. They they didn't come just to to learn about him, right? What, What did they come to do? What's their explicit purpose? Verse 2, we have come to worship him. What what brought them hundreds, if not thousands of miles, requiring painstaking travel was this. They, They had a desire, a zeal, a hunger, and thirst to honor and praise a worthy king they longed to meet. That's why they got on the plane, so to speak. And in in doing so, think about this. It was in that act, that that pursuit of the king, that they demonstrated the true depth of their wisdom. The words of Proverbs 1.7, wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, friend. Begins with the fear of the Lord. It, It always has. It always will. What what made these men wise was not their their knowledge of planetary orbits or or ancient literature or prophecies. It it was the holy, God-given resolve in their hearts to honor King Jesus. Though at this point, they don't even seem to know his name. I want you to remember that, friend. 
Remember what makes you truly wise. It's not how many languages you can program. It's not how much money you made this year. It's it's not how many degrees you have or the the polished character of your wardrobe or or how many witty one-liners come pouring off your tongue or dripping off your fingers, okay? There is one thing and one thing only that separates the foolish from the wise, and it's this. Do you fear the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Is the governing passion, the, the, the ruling desire in your life to know and follow hard after Jesus? That, that's the difference. And the creation he made still sings his glory, friend. Sings his glory, calling us to, to join the Magi in, in devoted pursuit of the King of Kings. Psalm 19.1, the heavens still declare the glory of God. We weren't waiting on special star to get this going down. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1 verse 20, for his invisible attributes, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. After which Paul wonderfully adds, so they are, we are, you are, I am, what? without excuse. You don't need to track down a specific star because the entire cosmos shouts of the glory and royal majesty of our creator. The the entire cosmos, every single star, compels us to confess there's a God in heaven who is infinitely worthy of praise. And I'm sure, I I would bet you this, there were a lot of things these wise men did not know about the Messiah yet. But they knew a really important thing. They knew he had come. They knew he had invaded. In the days of Herod, a, a day like our own, where the kingdoms of men are ruled by immoral dictators and rebellious toddlers, and sinners like us, and in Herod's day, in that day, in our kind of day, King Jesus came. He broke in. Nothing outside of himself obligated God to do so. He had had every right, every right, to let us just languish in the sorrow of our disobedience, hating and being hated, abusing our authority to to just incessantly advance the kingdom of me, running headlong toward justly deserved judgment. He had every reason, every right to just leave us in that. And yet in those days, our days, he's the king who intervenes. When you think incarnation, think King Jesus invading the kingdom of men. Point number two. King Jesus is opposed, here comes the contrast, he's opposed by all who cling to their own authority. Verses three through eight. Look at verse three. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. 
So don't miss the contrast. Verse 1, you have Herod the king. In verse 2, the king of the Jews. Verse 3, Herod the king. King, king, king. Except they're not the same king, right? The, the tension's palpable. That's on purpose. There's a conflict here. Who's, who's the real king? Who's going to be king? Because whoever this other king was, Herod didn't like him. That's an understatement. Why not? Why didn't Herod like him or the thought of him? Because he represented a a threat to Herod's authority, right? He he was a a danger to his personal autonomy, the autonomy of his kingdom. Was, Was all Jerusalem troubled with Herod for the same reasons? Did, did circulating reports of, of the Magi's quest, their question, did it, did it prick consciences? Did it disquiet hearts that, if they were being honest, were, were devoted to pursuing the kingdom of me? Or were they just afraid of how Herod would act out to a perceived threat and, you know, take some of them out in the process? I'd argue that the widespread opposition to Jesus among the people, among the Jews, in Matthew's gospel suggests that the former is in view, even though the latter is also historically accurate. And the point is that together, this Gentile king and his Jewish people illustrate a very different sort of response to the arrival of King Jesus than the Magi do, a response that indicts and exposes our own. Because it's the same age-old warfare that's been going down since Genesis 3. Will we worship God or will we try to be God? Will, Will we submit to his authority or will we assert our own? Will we rejoice in his royal rule or will we contend against him none of us here's why those questions matter none of us are born welcoming king jesus troubled is an understatement (laughs) because we're naturally opposed to his kingdom friend you are i am we all are we we want nothing to do with god's reign Just because. No, because we are that strongly committed to our own. We we, we come into the kingdom of this world, every one of us, embodying the attitude in Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and, and cast away their cords from us. We, we don't want this God to rule over us. I don't want to worship you. I want to be like you. I, I think I would be a better God than you are, God. That's us. And if you don't see that on some level in your own heart, you are utterly blind. If you think you can sanctify yourself to some, been a Christian 40 years point, 
where no part of you at all leads to this life, just a little bit, wants to be God. Then you're not getting your doctrine of sin from Scripture. Because Psalm 2 is not what other people do, friend. It's what you do. It's what I do. It's what, it's what all of us do. Our, our default OS, for all you techie people out there, is Herod's OS. All sin. Every failure. What, what is sin? Good. One of those words that just gets thrown around the church a lot. All sin, every failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. All sin ultimately boils down to an authority issue. All of it. Who, Who will be the functional king of your life? It all comes down to that. Everything. Know this. Christmas is not a symbol of whatever feel-good emotion you want to fill in the blank with. Okay? Christmas is about a king, friend. King Jesus, the, the king of kings who came to claim his own. That's what Christmas is about. That, that should trouble you. Hear that. That should trouble you if you are resisting or ignoring his divine authority in your life. He has not given you the luxury of saying, I didn't vote for you, go away. (laughs) My friends didn't vote for you, so get out of here. He is your king. You didn't get to pick that. You can never change that. The only thing you can change, the only thing you can determine and decide is how will you respond? King Jesus brooks no rivals and tolerates no coups. He does not participate in peaceful transitions of power from himself to you because the depth of his commitment to his glory and your good in his glory compels him to vindicate his authority and establish his reign. You cannot prevail against the Lord of hosts. But Herod certainly tried. We see ourselves he wasn't unfamiliar with messianic expectations. They, they longed for a deliverer who would what? Rescue them from the very Roman authority Herod represented. And so the wise men's question, no, no surprise, it, it resonated with his, within his soul as, as an existential threat. An assault on his autonomy was at hand, right? It, it was Herod's worst nightmare. It's what he feared the most. And so he gathers all the local specialists in messianic affairs in verse 4. And he says, where is this anointed one supposed to be born? I would like to know. And they answer him with the words of the prophet Micah. Let me, let me read the, the original prophecy where the portion Matthew quotes here was, was found. This is Micah 5, verses 2 through 5. Listen. Hundreds of years before this moment. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
who were too little small to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up, think exile in Babylon, until the time when she who is in labor, think Mary, has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, think great commission. And he shall stand, Jesus, and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they, his people, shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. What a promise that was. Micah spoke those words, as I mentioned, when when the Jews were fast on their way to exile in Babylon, and yet even as the consequences of their sin were coming, crashing down on them, exiled for their their disobedience of God's word, God made a promise. This story's not going to end here, guys. After the sorrow of exile, I, the Lord, will deliver and restore and purify a remnant for myself. Yahweh will work salvation for his people, but notice, Micah 5, it's not through a, a spiritual guru are offering an alternative path to personal fulfillment. It it is through a ruler, Micah says. Not a guru, a ruler. A shepherd king. A man with the authority to care. Because in the kingdom of God, authority and care always go together. And that's what Jesus came to do. That's exactly what he came to do, to be a shepherd kind of king, to to establish his reign, to inaugurate the kingdom of God, and and bring wandering sheep like us home to God. Herod the Great has nothing on this ruler. What does Micah say? He shall be great to the ends of the earth. Try that on for size, Herod. Or or peace. Think about that. Peace was something Herod fought to maintain, was was terrified of losing. What does Micah tell us is true about King Jesus? He is our peace. Peace isn't something that exists outside of himself, that, that he's struggling to maintain or prop up like Herod is. No, infinitely better. Peace is who he is. It's found within him. And it's enjoyed by all who who humbly submit to his authority. But here's, here's the bottom line in the second point. We don't naturally look to God's authority to find peace or to find life. Where do we naturally, moment of honesty here, where do we naturally look for life, for peace? Well, I'm going to bet all of you are a lot like me. <laughs> and I think the good life is often found in getting what I want. Are you like that? In building my kingdom, establishing my rule, and this is really important, convincing everybody around me that that's the way they should go too, right? Like, here's the plan. We're going to build the kingdom of me, and all of you need to get in line because we're going this way because it's the kingdom of me, not you, right? When you give your spouse the silent treatment after an argument, 
That's what you're doing. When you only seek counsel from supportive, emotionally sensitive people who will tell you exactly what you want to hear, that's what you're doing. When you lash out in anger at someone who isn't giving you what you want, that's what you're doing. At its core, think about this. Unholy anger in all its forms is a refusal to submit to God's rule every single time. Anger says, I want to rule. I must rule. I will rule. Just watch. (laughs) If you try to stop me, I will punish you. I will make sure you suffer. And here's the scary thing, friend. We can assert our rule, our kingdom, for altruistic ends as much as for manifestly selfish ends. What do I mean by that? Example, I'm only yelling at you, son, because I want you to stop disrespecting your mom. (laughs) A noble end doesn't justify a sinful means. You hear me? That the, the sinful way I respond to my child's rebellion simply reveals my own. We're in the same problem category. Because there's only one ruler. Here's what we have to know. Here, here's what we have to see. That this is where change Deliverance from slavery to anger starts. It starts at this junction. Listen, there's only one ruler who will stand in the end. You don't see that, you're always going to be angry. There's only one ruler who stands in the end. It's not you or me or the pastor you love or the politician you hate. It's King Jesus. For, For the people of God, The royal reign of Christ is a tremendous comfort. His his cosmic rule, his sovereign authority, his his unmatched supremacy are a joy to our hearts. But not so if you're you're trying to build your own kingdom on earth. If, If the cry of your heart is, my kingdom come, my will be done. And unless you think, I'm I'm just simply speaking to, to all those angry people or, you know, so many haters out there. <laughs> Consider this. Consider this. Just because you might feel like you're not consciously opposed or have something against Jesus' authority doesn't make you innocent. Because here's the test, okay? Here's the test. Are you more interested in building your kingdom or his? That's the test. Are are you living for him or are you living for yourself? There's no neutral space. There's no Switzerland option (laughs) where where you're just kind of, well, I'm not really for Jesus or against Jesus. I just am. That doesn't exist. That's not a thing. No one can serve two masters. 
Either you're living in glad submission to his authority or you are contending against his authority. It is one of those two, friend. They both may be present in your life, but there's no middle ground where it's not as bad as it could be. Matthew 12, 30. Jesus himself says, whoever is not with me is against me. That's the playing field. Two options. Herod, in other words, is all of us. That's what we have to see. Herod is Psalm 2. Herod is why we need a Savior King's way. (laughs) And why Christmas is such good news. Because yes, King Jesus is is opposed by all who resist his authority, point two. But here's point three. King Jesus is treasured by all who submit to his authority. All who submit to his authority. Verses nine to 12. So what's going on here? Well, after spinning a lie, because it was a big fat lie, about Herod was doing this, about his desire to come and, quote, worship the child, Herod sends these wise men off. He's not interested at all in worshiping Jesus. Just read ahead to back part of chapter 2. He's trying to kill him. But, but though, notice this. He appears to have duped the wise men because they say in verse 9, after listening to the king, he appears to have duped them. The, the Lord didn't stop leading these guys. Think about that. Have have you ever been in a situation where, where unbeknownst to you, a human authority figure of some kind was using you for their own selfish purposes? Ever been in that spot? For their own ends, you were being taken advantage of and you didn't even know it at the time? Well, take heart in this, friend. Take heart in the Lord's faithfulness to these guys. Herod's sinister schemes didn't stop God from directing the course of their life and leading them straight home to him. It's remarkable when you think about it. Because we can be similarly duped, Christian. Right? But, But know this, if the ruling desire in your heart is to worship and follow King Jesus, then God will not abandon or forsake you. He will direct you. He will guide you. He will care for you. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they got duped. They went on their way. Uh Uh-oh. And behold, intervention, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. They were wise men, certainly by the world's standards. But their wisdom couldn't bring them home to God. They were dependent on grace. They needed grace. They needed grace to bring them to God's place. No less than Israel needed a pillar of cloud. By day, pillar fire by night to lead them through the wilderness to the land of Canaan. And remember, these guys aren't even Israelites, right? They're Gentiles. They're, they're not people the Jews thought of as deserving God's mercy or meriting or worthy of his favor. And yet they were the very ones that the Lord said, yep, that's who I want to bring near. 
That's who I want to lead home. Remember that, friend. When, when you're tempted to disqualify or kind of red card yourself, because we've all been watching World Cup, <laughs> from receiving God's mercy. The issue, hear this, the issue isn't whether you've, you've earned an audience with the king. The issue is whether you're willing to pursue him as your king. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you do enough good works, when you really change. No, when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. When when you do that, friend, when when you seek the Lord as, as an expression of your devotion to him, know this, please hear this. You don't need a star to guide you because you have something far better. You know what that is? The word of the living God. Something far better. Why why do I say that? How can you know this? I'm not just getting all hyped up about the word of God. Well, listen to the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 1.18. Remember, before I read this, Peter had the incredible privilege of being on the Mount of Transfiguration where he saw the resplendent, pre-incarnate glory of Christ. You could put that fairly high on the list of amazing experiences (laughs) that he couldn't deny. He even heard the voice of God, 1 Peter 2.18. We ourselves heard this very voice from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. But then what does Peter do? Immediately, he rejoices that we have something far better. Hear this, Christian. You have something far better than your subjective personal experience to ground your faith and guide your pursuit of King Jesus. 1 Peter 1, 2 Peter 1, 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. More certain than all our subjective experiences to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the what? The morning star rises in your heart. What's that morning star? It's Christ himself. And how how does he lead us home to him? He does it through the gift of his word, friend. May may we rejoice in the guiding gift and light of the word of God far more than the Magi even rejoiced in that gracious, merciful, guiding physical star. Because rejoice they did. Look at verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with, with great joy. Literally, it's they, they rejoiced, rejoiced with great, very great. Because <laughs> they were experiencing the mercy of God. But then it, it, imagine this moment. Imagine the moment. They see the house. They go into the house. Look at verse 11. They see the child with Mary, his mother. They, they see him with their very own eyes. Can you imagine being there? The, the one who created the stars, the star that guided them, 
The one who in that very moment was sustaining their bated breath and beating hearts. The, the one friend who has reigned over the affairs of your life since the day you were born. That Lord, that, that king was sitting or lying or sleeping or standing or eating or something before them as a toddler. Subject to all the frailties of human flesh. And yet in that very moment, those little hands were upholding the universe. Stunning. And the more you think about that, the, the more it'll make you just long to see Jesus. Right? Do, do you long to see him, Christian? Do you long to see him? One day you will. Revelation 22, verse 4. This has got to be, let's project this. Do we have this? Probably not, because I probably didn't send it, because I'm a frail king. <laughs> it says, they will see his face. That's like the best will in the Bible, guys. They will see his face, the, the object of our longing, the end of our quest, the goal of our journey, the magi weren't disappointed Christian, and the faithfulness of your God, guiding you by the word of God, bringing you home, you won't be disappointed either. And I think about all the ways these wise men could have responded. You know, all, all the questions they could have asked, all the objections they could have raised, all the concerns they could have lodged. I mean, if I pulled all of you, you probably have your own list of whys and why nots that are in your growing list of like, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to, you know. But the moment they saw him, none of that came out. It wasn't because they were unaware of the finer points of This life, they were wise men, but but in the moment they saw him, it wasn't questions or objections or how to be God better suggestions that, that poured out. Look at verse 11. They fell down and they worshiped him. That was the right response. That was the right response. That's the, that's the only response. That's what we were created to do. That's what Jesus has redeemed us to do. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. A lot of different people have read a lot of different stuff into those. Take note again, just like, well, what star was it? Was it a Jupiter thing? We don't know. <laughs> but we don't need to know. We don't need to add to God's word because he tells us what we need to know. And what do we need to know? That those were gifts of tremendous value. It was a picture of true worship. Because true worship isn't about really getting into the singing on Sunday mornings. <laughs> if you come to me and say, oh, what a wonderful time of worship. I, thanks for leading us into the presence of God. I'm going to die on the inside. 
for two big reasons. One, I can't lead anyone into the presence of God. That's why we need King Jesus, <laughs> right? That's big. And secondly, he, hear this. True worship is just so much bigger than what we subjectively feel in this building. I mean, if you, if you feel anything of the presence of God who delights to manifest himself when two or three are gathered together, I, that's a whole other message. He manifests himself unique ways, presence of his people. I believe that. But, but if you think that's, that's all worship is, well, then you don't know the king. Because this king doesn't lay claim to your heebie-jeebie feelings in one space for one and a half hours, one day of the week when you're not traveling. He lays claim to your entire life. All of you. All your time, all your money, all your relationships, your sexuality, your physical body that you have, that you like, that you don't like, your wits, your abilities, all of it. And that's where we have to make a really critical connection here. Think about this as we prepare to conclude. Who was it? This, is, this may be the most important thing you think about this morning. Who was it who experienced the joy of treasuring Jesus? Who got to do that? Who got to experience that? It wasn't Herod who was clutching to his own authority. It was men who came with humble hearts. If, if you want if you want to see Jesus, if you want to know the joy of his presence, if you want the satisfaction of worshiping him, I mean, do, do those things, are, are they attractive in your eyes? If you want those things, well then, there, there's one requirement, friend, one requirement. This is the main point of the whole passage. You want those things, you must submit to Jesus' authority. You must submit to his authority. You, you can't do an end run around his authority. You can't say, well, I'd like to feel emotionally built up, but not the, through the authority thing. <laughs> can I just like, <laughs> no, no. I can think of no better way to say this. Either you come to him as your king or you do not come to him at all. It's that simple. And some people say, because I've heard this, well, I might consider coming to him, submitting to him, if he first proves to me he's worth it. But he's going to have to make the first move. He has to meet my standards, my evaluation, deliver my list of goodies, answer all my prayers, bow down at the altar of my authority. Otherwise, I'm not budging. Happy to submit to you if you prove yourself worthy. Oh, it's deadly, friends. Why? Why? Because King Jesus didn't come to submit himself to the courtroom of your little authority or mine or any of us. He came to claim his own and, and the sight of his glory. You want to see Jesus? You want to experience the joy of Jesus? That sight, that experience is exclusively and always reserved for the humble. For those who say through the power of the Spirit, 
Jesus, you are my king. And though not perfectly, I freely and willingly and no areas of life off-limitedly <laughs> submit to your word. Wait, the word? I thought this was about like thinking Jesus was cool and kind of doing things the Jesus way. You know, what would Jesus th- Well, he's told you what he wants you to do. It's found right here. There's no other way to know him. There's no other way to approach him and live. King Jesus, in other words, is treasured and only treasured by those who submit to his authority. And the story ends in verse 12 with really a remarkable glimpse of the the prevailing presence of God, if we could say it that way. Herod's laid this elaborate trap, right? And what's the king of kings do? Oh no, schemes of men, derailing plan, institute backup options. And it's like, no, what does he do? He just springs the trap. Hey, simple gift of a dream, that'll work. Warns these three Gentiles to go home a different way. I love that. I love that because there are times when the the kingdom of God, his redemptive rule over his people, that's what it is, in your life, his work in your life, his work in our church, all of that can just appear so small and helpless and awkward and weak and insignificant. And I read these Christian books about what the church should be, and then I look at my church and I'm like, that's not what it is. And, you know, it's, mm. <laughs> looks about as vulnerable and helpless and awkward as a, shall we say, a one-year-old child. But if that child, if your soul, your faith, this church, is sustained by the presence of Almighty God who sees and knows and is intimately aware of every scheme of man, then what can we know? What can you know for sure, Christian, that there's no power of hell that can pluck you out of that hand? Doesn't exist? Isn't ever going to find you? Because the Father guards his own. He guarded the life of the Son, If you're in Christ by faith, he guards you too. Grant Osborne hits the nail on the head. When people try to thwart the divine will, God intervenes supernaturally to overcome all such actions. Praise God for that. Because he hasn't changed. He hasn't changed. He's he's still the king. So remember the point. Remember the big question. How are you going to respond? You're going to oppose him? You're going to submit to him? You're going to follow him? You're going to contend with him? You cannot change the fact that he's the king. You can decide. And every day of your life, the most important decision you will decide is today, how am I going to respond to King Jesus? Friend, do that very, very carefully. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, be wise, be warned, be careful, look out, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear 
and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled, but blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we think of Christmas, would you make us a people that do not pick our favorite vibes or our preferred meaning? Would you give us the humility to believe what you have said, that Christmas is your divine invasion of the kingdom of men? including all the little kingdoms that we so busy ourselves trying to fashion and defend and maintain. Holy Spirit, I ask you in this moment for the grace of conviction that we would go further than, sure, pastor, it's possible to build my own kingdom. We want to go into, Lord God, please show us exactly where we've been doing that. in our relationships, with our finances, in our excessive work, in our lack of diligence, in our self-pity, in our arrogant boasting, in our unholy anger, in the silent punishing version of anger, Show us, please, start to know our hearts where we're not acting at all as if you're king. Give us the humility this season to submit ourselves anew to you because you are an incredibly good and gracious kind of king. You're a king who brings forgiveness. You're a king who brings mercy. You're you're a king who leads us when we've been duped by people and are being taken advantage of and couldn't lead our way out of a paper bag. You're a king who meets us with mercy. Thank you for that, God. Give us hearts that submit to you so that we might experience the great joy, because it is a great joy, Lord, of living for you, devotion to you, and treasuring you. Thank you, Jesus, that you invaded this kingdom of men. You didn't leave us alone. Give us joy in that, I pray in your name. Amen.